doing with this mic? There we go. It's, it's, it's a little weird here, up here. I'm used to being down there with you, but the Board of Health sent me a letter and said, stay away from people. I have to break down and take a shower. I don't know, Pastor Mike. So Acts 21 is where we are tonight. We're going to dim the lights in just a minute and enjoy uh, the visual of it. But then we're going to break down the, the chapter verse by verse. And so much in these chapters, they're rich. You know, as a pastor teaching, you know, many times when you're teaching a, a chapter and going verse by verse, there's so many places where I'd like to stop and camp out, just preach a sermon out of there. But uh, it's a different approach here as we get an overview of the book of Acts. Remember, this is a blueprint for us for our living. And boy, is it applicable now as, you know, we're in weird situations here, but there's also opportunities for evangelism. And I think God's got his people focused on the fact that there's a lot of people out there who are ripe and could use the gospel. Amen. Amen. Anyone besides Pastor Mike? Any? <laughs> Amen. I knew he was saved. I knew I had a couple. So, Father, we just thank you tonight for your word, for a blueprint for the church. And, Lord, as this goes forth and we see it with our eyes, help imprinted in us, Lord God, so that the word comes flowing out of us and these principles are, are made applicable to our daily living so that we would be like Paul. We would be apostolic. We would be kingdom people. We would say the call above all. We would forsake the pleasures of this world and, and seek the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, let this chapter come alive to us tonight. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kaz. The next day, we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. 
After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. Oh. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. Oh. 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 
When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him! As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, uh, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. His defense will be next week. So Paul continues to travel. This is a, another missionary journey. He took three of them. Uh, he's ministering everywhere he goes, and he's moving at a pretty uh, fast pace here because he realizes he's pressed for time. You know, and he maximizes his time, and he invested in strengthening the churches. And I want you to see the, the kingdom mentality that Paul has. Many of us as believers, New Testament believers, we're, we're like, well, he's the apostle Paul, and I'm just, you know, an ordinary Christian. But all of us are supposed to be kingdom-minded like this. And when we think of it that way, it's like, wow, he invests himself. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in here. Everywhere he goes, he strengthens the churches. The believers do their part in the body of Christ. Uh, whenever he comes, they host him. He finds faithful people in that region to host him. And you say, well, what can I do to serve the kingdom of God? You know, service is the thing that we bring to the table. All of us have gifts, but all of us can serve. And the thing is, find somewhere to serve. And, you know, in our church, there are many opportunities to serve. You know, right now when things are kind of shut down and there's a, a lot of ministries are on pause, you might think, well, you know, how do I get involved now? Well, just pray and store yourself up with the word and let the Holy Spirit fill you because there's opportunities to serve as Things happen, you know, teaching the children, teaching new believers, mentoring young people, inviting friends and family members and neighbors and coworkers to church. That's a way to serve the kingdom of God. Maybe you never thought about that, but, you know, just affecting families, affecting people, affecting friends. I know it's awkward. I know it's, it's difficult to get people to come. They say they're going to come and they don't show up or they show up and then the pastor says something crazy. I know it gets embarrassing. But uh, these are ways that we can serve the kingdom of God. Paul's ministry tempo is a great motivator for all of us because here's a guy, uh, the, the, the time is ticking down and we see him, instead of shrinking back, he presses forward. You know, many of us can get spiritually lazy at time, uh, you know, but as we see the time approaching and the time growing short, we need to get up, we need to get moving, and we need to serve the king and the kingdom. Say amen. amen. Verse 4 to 7, every place that Paul goes, the believers receive him there. Uh, and he has a house to stay in. There's a host that ministers to him in that region. And let's not forget that one of the best ways we can be used in the kingdom of God is just to be available. 
That's it. Well, what do I do? How do, do I have to know a lot of theology? Do I have to be really smart? No, all you have to do is be available. These people opened up their houses to him. That's all they did. And when he came there, they made it uh, hospitable for him so that he can do effective ministry. Now, remember, hospitality is a spiritual gift. Someone say amen. amen. You know, and sometimes in our community, in our society, we're kind of closed off. You know, it used to be that neighborhoods, everybody knew their neighbors and you knew each other. Now it's like, no matter where you live, I live on a dirt road in Dover and it's like a gated community. People literally have gates on their, on their driveways. Like, you know, they don't wanna, I, I was talking to someone just recently and I, I talked about, you know, we, I don't know my neighbors. And, and th they said, well, I don't wanna know my neighbors. And I thought, wow, you know, <laughs> Was that thunder? Oh, that, was cool. that was cool. That was a special effect right there. So, yeah, you know, being hospitable, using the gift of hospitality, you know, too many of us are just too cloistered off. That doesn't promote fellowship. That doesn't promote ministry. We need to open our hearts and open our homes uh, for the purposes of the kingdom of God. There's a reason God gave some of us homes. So we can host people, <laughs> So we can bring other people. There's a reason that we have, you know, a blessed family. None of our families are perfect, but you'd be surprised at how many people just coming into a Christian home and seeing a mom and a dad and a dinner table, how that can impact their lives. So Paul, you know, had people minister to him. They used their gift of hospitality. And I just wanted you to remi be reminded of that. Verse 8, Paul stays with Philip the evangelist. Now, this is a pretty cool thing because, you know, Philip was one of the seven that they had, uh, they had anointed to minister to the widows and to take care of some of the menial things. But he was a powerful man of God. This Philip guy, he was one of the seven chosen uh, in the book of Acts, in Acts 6, where we covered that to take care of the widows. But he, if you remember him, he was also the Philip who ministered to the Ethiopian man. Do you remember that? He, he was, you know, walking along the road and here comes the Ethiopian and he gets in there. He opens the word up to him and then God translates him from that place and takes him away. Do you remember that? Yes. He baptizes the Ethiopian. So powerful guy, powerful ministry. And, you know, Paul stays with him. Uh, in verses nine through 11, we see the prophetic gifts in the church. This guy has a bunch of young daughters who are filled with the Holy Spirit and they prophesy. So I want you to take note of the prophetic ministry in the early church. There'll be some uh, denominations and there'll be some Bible teachers who say, you know, those gifts aren't active in the New Testament church. Well, here they are in the New Testament church in a book that is the pattern of the New Testament church. And here are the prophetic gifts active. And they're in these young girls and, you know, there are seven virgin daughters there that are filled with the Holy Spirit and they're prophetic. Those are Philip's children. Isn't it beautiful to see Philip ministering and, and then having children that are also having ministry gifts? It's just a powerful thing. Verse 10, another prophet named Agabus, he speaks powerfully uh, to Paul, and it's important what he says. Uh, we need to make note of it. Ag Agabus prophesies over him, and as you saw in the video, he takes his belt, and he shows him that basically the guy who owns this belt is going to be chained up. He's going to be in bondage. So it's, it's kind of an interesting prophetic thing. It's not something that Paul hasn't heard before. He's had clues. He's had inklings uh, to what awaited him in Jerusalem. But there again, I want you to see the prophetic ministry active. Paul's doing missions. He's, he's an apostolic. He's evangelistic. And then we got prophets here. So you're seeing a whole bunch of ministry gifts active in the church. 
And that's normal church ministry, someone say amen. amen. So Agabus prophesies to him, and he gives him this warning. Uh, he's telling him, this is what awaits you there. Now, the people's response in verse 12 through 14 is kind of interesting. They kind of respond like Peter did when Jesus said that he was going to die and go to the cross. Remember what Peter did? He's like, no, Jesus, you're not going, and he's kicking up a fuss, and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, Right? So Peter, when he hears of Jesus' destiny, Pastor Mike, he didn't like it. When these guys hear about the fact that Paul's going to Jerusalem and bondage awaits from there and it's trouble, they don't like it either. And they have kind of the same response as Peter. I want you to see the, the way that they respond here. It speaks to us a little bit. They don't want him to go. They're like, don't go, don't do it. We won't let you. And Paul, Paul doesn't say, get thee behind me, Satan, to them. But his response does confront their emotionalism. In verse 13, he says, what are you doing? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? So he's saying, look, guys, your response is affecting me emotionally. And I want you to see that right there. Emotionalism can give way to manipulation if a servant of God is not in the spirit and have control of his own emotions. Hear that? I want you to get this. Uh, emotionalism can give way to manipulation. This is important. And we're gonna talk about this a little bit because uh, you know manipulation is something that can keep people from doing the will of God. You know, God has a will for each of our lives and the enemy doesn't want us to do it. And so there will be people who come and you know, through emotions or persuasion or whatever avenues they will, trying to manipulate us to sidetrack us from what God's called us to do. Now, I'm not saying these good people who are given a genuine emotional response were manipulating Paul, but I wanna say two things here. Number one, people's emotional outbursts can influence us in the wrong direction if we're not careful. Hear this tonight. There are people that, oh, they're, oh, don't, you know, oh, stay with me, or, you know. I mean, there are times in all of our lives where there are people around us who don't necessarily have the kingdom interests in mind. They could be friends, they could be family, they could be parents, and all of a sudden, they make an emotional plea. Now, it could be genuine, but it's dangerous, because why? We have emotions, too. Anyone have emotions? You're looking at me like statues. I'm starting to wonder. You got emotions out there. Yes. Yes, I've emoted on several occasions. You know, we're emotional. So someone, you know, a friend, a, a coworker, a family member makes an emotional plea. That can be pretty persuasive to us. And I've seen people persuaded from, you know, these things, doing the will of God, going to the mission field, going into the ministry, because someone manipulated them emotionally. So we have to be careful because our emotions need to be under control and emotionalism is dangerous. Uh, you know, sadly, we've seen a lot of emotionalism in the body of Christ that passes for spirit-driven uh, ministry when really it's just manipulative. Now, I thank God that it's less now than it was, but I've seen all kinds of ministries that were just emotionally based and manipulative and... It, I don't want to, you know, you guys are looking at me like uh, you don't understand what I'm saying, but it's out there. So guard your emotions, guard your hearts, develop some discernment and use wisdom. Uh, 
So these people weren't trying to manipulate him, but he needed to have his emotions in check, and he did. There are those people who will purposely try and manipulate you with emotionalism, so you've got to be on guard for that too. Paul says to him, look, guys, don't cry. You're breaking my heart. It's genuine here. He doesn't get emotionally overwhelmed. They, you know, He says, I'm ready to be bound and even to die for Jesus. So do you remember we talked about Peter? Peter said, I'm ready to die. But he didn't. He denied him three times. Paul says, I'm ready to be bound and to die. And he is ready and he does. What's the difference? Now, when Peter's time came to, you know, Peter was martyred and uh, history says that he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. He felt unworthy. So when Peter's time came the second time, he did the right thing. What was the difference between Peter and Paul at this point? And I'll tell you what it is. It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had fell at Pentecost and the believers were filled. But when Peter said to Jesus, I'm, I'll, you know, I'm go to, I'll go to death with you, it was before the Holy Ghost came. See, the difference in us, the thing that gives us power and strength and conviction and the ability to do kingdom things is being filled with the Holy Ghost. Without the Holy Ghost, man, we, we, we can't do it in our own strength. That's why we need to walk in the Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit. Not just, you know, a little trickle here, a little trickle there, but it has to be a walk. It has to be a, a continual infilling of the Holy Ghost because without the Holy Spirit, we're weak and we're lethargic and we get lazy and we're ornery and our flesh gets up. Hello! So Peter didn't have it in him. <laughs> And he denied Jesus three times. Paul says, I'm ready to die, and I'm ready to, and you know what, he was. And he was dead on because he was full of the Spirit. He was walking in the Spirit. He was doing kingdom things. And uh, verse 14, Paul wouldn't be talked down off the ledge. They couldn't persuade him, so they quit trying. And they make this very wise conclusion in verse 14. They say, the will of the Lord be done. Isn't that a good idea? It's a good idea, right? You know, not my will be done, not, you know, our collective, let's take a vote on it. No, God's will be done. So, you know, the emotions were there. The, you know, they were upset. They didn't really want him to, but he wouldn't back down. Why? Because he was full of the Holy Spirit and he knew he was walking towards his destiny. So they said, God's will be done. That's a good thing for us. There's times uh, being a Christian that, you know, we're going to have to do things and face things and deal with things that we would rather not, but God's will be done. Verse 15, in the face of these prophetic warnings, Paul knows he has to go to Jerusalem, and he does. Obedience to God's word and to God's will is, you know, at moments will put us in harm's way. You say, well, why would God ever do that to us? Listen, God's ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. We, we don't understand the beginning from the end, but God has a purpose even in our suffering, even in our persecution, even in the hard moments of life. There are many times where, you know, if I was designing my life, God, I would have done it a little different. But you know what? God's will be done. And Paul, he knows that what's lying ahead of him. He has a lot of clues here. And at the same time, he's, he's not willing to run away from those things. A spiritual maturity dictates that even when it's uncomfortable, we do God's will anyway. Someone say amen. amen. Verse 16 and 17, Paul's received by the brethren in Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem, and it starts off good. 
They're happy to see him. The church is there. You know, he's been moving from place to place. And I want you to see he gets to Jerusalem. It's kind of the epicenter there. The church isn't just local. It's not just regional. It's not just national. The body of Christ is global. Amen. It's everywhere. We have brothers and sisters everywhere. Some of them you're not going to meet till you get to heaven. But they're everywhere. We're global. And so Paul, you know, he heads back to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him there. In verse 18 and 19, he reports to James in Jerusalem, kind of the epicenter of the leadership there. And he gives the elders an update on all the things that God had done in the missionary journey and, and the outreach and, and what God had done. Now, he, they hear about all that God had done. And in verse 20, their response is to rejoice and to praise God that God was moving in the Gentile world. So this is a great response. It's kind of, there's kind of a little bit of division here. You you know, in Jerusalem, they're dealing mostly with the Jews. They're going to testify to Paul that, you know, thousands of Jews have been saved since you've been gone, and, and, and the gospel's spreading here. Um, but Paul gives them the, the, what's going on in the Gentile world. You see, there's a little bit of division there in the early, early leadership. Not that they're, you know, divided in principle or theology, but one group is ministering primarily to Jews, and Paul's out there bringing it to the Gentiles. So they come back and they prepare, they compare notes, and everybody's excited. Why? Because God is moving. You and I should be excited when God moves wherever he moves, amen? If God starts to move in Korea, praise God. If there's a revival that breaks out in Africa, praise God. If, you know, the Dominican Republic, an evangelist goes there and there's healing, praise God, amen? Our Chinese brothers and sisters, we should praise God when the church grows wherever it grows. I want you to start thinking globally, you know, missions is super important to the Father. Why? Because it's not just about God bless us and our church and our four walls, but it's global, and he's, he wants us to be kingdom-minded. So the elders are excited about what God is doing, and uh, Paul's excited about what he hears too. Uh, in verse 20b and verse 21, the latter half there, the elders relate that thousands of Jews have believed, and that's great news, and they told they, they were told that, you know, these Jews that were believing in Jerusalem had heard some things about Paul, that he was teaching and saying things that he didn't really teach or say. Now realize they got a report about him and they had believed that he was, uh, you know, saying don't follow the customs and don't circumcise your children and, and forget about the law. And so the Jews that were in Jerusalem were kind of like, they were amped up about Paul, and now Paul shows up in Jerusalem. And I want you to, I want you to see the setup here. Uh, God is always doing stuff. He's always moving. He's always saving whosoever will. But then there will be religious groups that are just going to find something to be offended about and push back against the gospel. The religious will always push back against the gospel. You know, I talked about a religious spirit, and you've heard me preach about it before. And even on last Sunday, I think I mentioned religious devils are some of the nastiest devils you'll ever deal with. And that's what Paul comes up against here. It's religious Jews that, you know, are nitpicking over his teaching, and they're not excited about the Gentiles being saved. 
And so <laughs> there's a little pushback there. Verse 22 through 24, the elders have an idea how to buffer this. They're trying to kind of smooth it over so that the people won't be so upset at Paul. And they felt strongly that he needed to do something preemptively to disarm the bad press that had preceded him. So Paul, uh, you know, he's out in the field. They hear he's like violating all the Jewish customs and down talking the law. The religious people are mad. And, the, you know, they, they get this opinion of him and, you know, they're ready to confront him over it. So what they tell him to do in verse 25 through 27 is, you know, we're going to have these guys take a Nazarite vow. They're going to shave their heads. You remember at one point, and I think it was in Chechorea, Paul shaved his head and took a vow. So they're saying, you know, kind of go through the motions here, kind of go with the customs here to just, you know, make it look good so nobody's offended so you can smooth it over. Are you getting this? There are many times, we talked about the time when Paul did shave his head. Why did he do it? Because God wanted it to? No, he did it to make himself more appealing to the, the Judaizers so that he could smooth things over. Sometimes being a Christian means taking the low road, means being humble. We don't always have to be first and right and prove our point and, and fight to details. Hello? This is good preaching, amen? Some of you are pretending like you're not hearing it. So we don't always have to be right. Hello, married people. You don't have to win every argument. Ladies, you can let us win once in a while. Keep hope alive. Come on, right? Every once in a while, throw one, throw on, take one for the team. So Paul's like, all right, you know, you want me to go with these guys? I'll have myself purified, you know. Uh, they didn't shave his head this time, but he took a Nazarite vow at another time. <laughs> you know, and the, and the elders there realize this is Christian leadership asking him to do something ritualistic, and he, he goes along with it. I like in the video, they showed his face. He's like, <sighs> you know, but he does it, and it's humility, and it speaks to us, um, the Jewish converts uh, were, you know, they were stuck in some of their traditions. They venerated the law. And I want you to see something here. They recap here what they had required of the Gentile believers. They're like, Paul, just go with these guys. They're going to shave their heads. It's going to look good for you. Uh, you know, get ritualistically cleansed and make it look good, make a good showing. And then they recap what they required of the Gentile believers. They said, you know, all we asked from the Gentiles was that they abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from strangled things, and from fornication. So there was just a few rules for the Gentiles when they came into the kingdom. But Jewish converts were expected to abide by many of the Jewish customs and traditions that were still valid for them. And the Gentiles were not. Realize, Jewish believers even today that get saved and become Messianic Jews, they keep a lot of the cultural customs and celebrate the feast. And that's okay for them because that's what God's required for them. When a Gentile does it who's not a Jew, it's just a little bit weird. And, and when Gentiles do it because they like the, the, the religiosity of it, most times they get really legalistic. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. When a Jew comes in to salvation with Jesus Christ, you know, God might expect him to keep certain cultures and customs if he lived as a Jew, and that's what he expects of the Jewish people. For the Gentiles, it's different. I know many Messianic Jews who still keep a lot of the customs. I know some of them that eat bacon. So, you know, it's, it's grace, it's not legalism. But there were different expectations of Jewish converts and of uh, Gentile converts, and we need to make note of that. 
Verse 27, while Paul seemed to, you know, willing to make the preemptive attempt, and he does it to disarm the Jews, when he gets to the temple, it's on. They don't care what he did. They don't care about the symbolism over substance. They don't care about him trying to smooth it over. Somebody catches him in the temple, and they stir up the crowd. And you saw the way they stirred up the crowd. First, they physically attacked Paul. You know, and as we see uh, our world spinning into violence in so, mu- so many ways in that, you know, persecution looming even for the church. And I, I hope you realize, you know, I- I'm starting a sermon series on Sunday that's going to help us realize the trajectory of the way things are going. You know, you and I need to be ready to face persecution for the kingdom of God. And if we're not ready and we don't want to go there and we're offended by it, you know, there is going to be a great falling away before Jesus comes. Many people are not, well, I'll sit in church and I'll come once in a while and I'll, you know, sing a few songs, but, you know, I'm not going to be persecuted. I'm not going to be singled out. Sound effects are great tonight. I just want to thank the, the team back there in the booth. That's a good job. Sounded so real. But, you know, he's being persecuted here. What he's doing, God's work. He's saving Gentiles. It's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. They assault him. They attack him. They beat him. And they, they stir up the crowd. You know, uh, the Jews in Asia, they spew falsehoods about Paul. And they, they incite the mob. Look what they accuse him of. He preaches against our people and the law. No, he didn't. He didn't do that. He's preaching about the completion of the law, the fulfillment of the law. He loves the Jewish people. He, he went to the temples first to minister to them until they threw him out. Then they say he defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into it. They assumed that he brought Trophimus in there, but he didn't. See, they make all these accusations, and that's the way the mobs are. They just shout loud, and they make accusations, and everybody goes, yeah, and they stir the whole thing up. And Paul wasn't guilty of any of these things. Yet he's assaulted, he's persecuted, and they snatch him up. Verse 30, the lies work their magic on the multitudes, and boom, they're provoked to violence. Be very careful what you let provoke you. I've seen a lot of Christians allow demonic provoking spirits that are at work right now provoke them into aligning themselves with things and doing things that don't line up with scripture. Be very careful what you let provoke you. There are provoking spirits that want to harness the Christian and the pulpit of the churches so they can align with the things of Baal and not with the things of the kingdom of God. Look, we have to be biblically correct, not politically correct. We don't just say certain things to appease certain crowds so that we fall in line with the culture and think we're smoothing it over. It works about as good as what they did to smooth over the the gospel being preached to the Gentiles there. It didn't work at all. It wasn't even a speed bump. So don't go there. Don't compromise. Don't be provoked. Don't be forced into saying certain things or aligning yourself with certain things that are unbiblical and ungodly just to appease the culture. It's good preaching. I don't care if you're staring at me at all. So I got this bulletproof pulpit here. I'm good. So, you know, here we go. This is not going well for Paul. And you look at the fact that uh, violence has come and the crowd is being stirred up. And, uh, 
you know, they've accused him of all of these false charges, much like what they did to Jesus. He's grabbed up, he's drugged out of the temple, they lock the doors, and at this point, everybody's worst fears are realized. All the people in all the churches have begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem, all the prophecies that he heard that warned him not to go to Jerusalem, and now the worst case scenario has happened. He goes, and they got him, and they've grabbed him up, and they're, they're beating him, and they want to kill him. So you might think, well, why in the world if he knew and they warned him and nobody wanted him to go, did he go? Because he knew that God wanted him to go. It was his destiny. He wanted to go. I want you to get this. He wasn't scared. He, he wasn't, you know, let me think about it. He wanted to go because he knew it was his destiny to preach the gospel to these people in Jerusalem, including the Romans, and make an impact on all the leadership there. Sometimes the will of God is not beneficial to our flesh. Sometimes the will of God puts us in harm's way. Sometimes the will of God is dangerous, but we should never shrink back from doing it if God has called us to do it. We, the righteous need to be bold as lions, and Paul was, and he, he heads there, so they snatch him up, and they got him. Verse 31 tells us that, you know, the mob is ready to kill him, and, and who saves him? It's amazing who saves him. The Romans save him. Now, the Romans are eventually going to imprison him and, and execute him, but at this moment, he's saved by the Romans. <laughs> uh, you know, God is our source. God is our strength, but God can use anybody or anything in our moment of need. I want you to see that. God can use the righteous and the unrighteous. He could use godly kings and wicked kings. In this case, he uses the Romans. And the Romans hear the big, you know, cry of the mob and the city's going crazy. So they're made aware of the situation in verse 31 and verse 32. They show up, and when they show up, the mob stops beating Paul. Now, they, they probably just saved his life. You say, well, well, that was lucky. No, it wasn't lucky. It was God-ordained. You see, the, the, the beating that they were putting on this man would be held to their accounts, the, the wickedness and the religiosity of those people. They'd have to give an account for that. But they weren't allowed to take his life because God wasn't done with him. And I want you to see that. No man can take your life. Hello? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm just afraid I need to go into hiding. No, listen, you be obedient to the will of God. Do what he's called you to do. Be bold as a lion. Be gentle as a dove. But nobody can take our lives. Our lives are in God's hand. You know those two dates on the, on the headstone there, when you were born and when you die? Ours is, mine is already, you know, God knows. God's not going to, you know, oh, somebody's going to get me and God's going to go, what are you doing here? You're early. No, he's in charge of that. So we need to trust him. You know, if my beginning and my end is, is preordained and it's in God's hand, what do you and I have to be afraid of? Come on, let's unwind fear. Let's push back fear. Let's just rest in the dominion and the sovereignty and the power of Almighty God who knows my beginning and my end. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. So Paul, you know, he's getting roughed up here. They were ready to kill him, but God sends the Romans to save him, which, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing here, but they intervene and the beating stops. Eventually, you know, the Romans are gonna finish with the mob started, but God's not done with them yet. Verse 33, Paul is treated like a dangerous criminal, the, this, this dangerous preacher of the gospel. He's bound with two chains. Good idea, guys. Hands and feet, bind him up. They, they're carrying him out of there. Verse 34 through 35, 
is a picture of the mob. As the, as the Roman centurions try and question the mob to find out what this guy has done, these verses tell us that they keep shouting all different things. You know, m- most mobs, most uh, protests, people don't even know why they're there. And so this mob, they, he, he did this, he did that. You know, we don't like the way he looks. His sandals didn't match. You know, something. And the Romans are just like, oh, they're frustrated with it. So, you know, they just start to carry him away. The leader says to Paul, weren't you that Egyptian that stirred up a big ruckus and brought people out in the desert? You know, and Paul reveals to him that, no, I'm not that Egyptian. I didn't start any rebellion. I'm a Jew from Tarsus, from Cilicia. And, you know, the Roman centurion realized this is an educated man. He speaks multiple languages. He speaks Greek. I don't know if the Roman might have figured out that Paul had Roman citizenship. Maybe he knew from the region that he was from. I'm not sure. But he catches the centurion's attention, and he says to him, can I address the crowd? And because Paul's articulate, because he's educated, because he's well-spoken, the centurion listens to him, and he lets him address the crowd. And when we get into next week, God willing, if we're back here, uh, you know, we're going to see Paul makes his defense and he, he tries to, uh, you know, diffuse and just to minister and to speak the gospel. But God is using Paul and it's not pleasant and it's not pretty. And, and there are some scary moments, but he knows it's his destiny. And every time he gets to speak to a, a group, whether it's the Jewish leadership or he gets to speak to the Romans or he's going to minister to those people who chain him up, the centurions who cart him around from place to place, he's going to minister to everyone everywhere he goes. And that's how you and I should be. No matter where we wind up, no matter who we're with, we should be light in the darkness. And we should be preaching the gospel, amen? And we should be sharing our faith, amen? It's dangerous for the devil to have us around anybody. And that's how you and I need to live. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you tonight for uh, the book of Acts and this prototype for uh, church function and for ministry. And Father, I thank you for the apostle Paul. Father, so many of us would look at him and think we could never be like this man, but yet you've called each of us to be an evangelist, to spread the gospel, to be kingdom-minded. So Father, I pray you would raise up uh, those who have kingdom hearts and apostolic hearts and, and evangelistic hearts and that we would see the world as a mission field as Paul did. And Father, from the moment we get up in the morning to the moment we lay our head down at the pillow at night, I pray we would be effective tools in sharing the gospel with others. God, do that work in me. Do it in my brothers and sisters. And God, fill this place with the broken and the hurting and the lost and turn them into the people of God. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Give him praise tonight. Amen. I guess we could take an offering and and Pastor Mike's gonna do an interpretive dance. Oh, it's okay. Let's take an offering.